Welcome back to Russian Roulette, a podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, in this episode of Russian Roulette, I am joined by Louis Lauder and Colin McElhenney. Uh, Louis is the Vice President for Congressional and Government Affairs at CSIS, and Colin is the Associate Director and Associate Fellow for Congressional and Government Relations. We talk about the role that Congress plays in relations with Russia, uh, how the Russia issue plays politically in the new Congress, and uh, what we might expect when it comes to new sanctions legislation. Um, It's a really interesting and, I think, if I may say so myself, timely conversation. Uh, We hope you find it interesting and useful. Let's get started. I'm in the studio this week with Louis Lauder and Colin McElhenney from the Congressional Affairs Program here at CSIS. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So let's start with maybe the dog that, that didn't bark, right? Uh, in 2016, there was, it seems now, pretty clear evidence of Russian efforts to affect the election. Um, a lot of people were saying in the run-up to the 2018 midterms to expect more of the same. Um we didn't see too much of that, did we? Uh, no, no, we didn't. Um, and I think what was one of the interesting uh, dynamics about the election was there are quite a few national security focused members, members who had significant foreign policy and national security experience that were running. Um, uh, There's a candidate from Virginia that was a CIA agent. There was a candidate from Michigan who was a, um, a, a, an assistant secretary at the Department of Defense. Uh, you had a number of veterans that ran. So you would think foreign policy issues would, would be more out there, but they weren't. Uh, the focus uh, on the campaign was was really domestic policy. This um, is usually the case in midterm elections. That, that is true. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, so what I would say is while um, the midterm election was more traditional in the sense of focus on domestic policy, um, I think that there's an interest in Russia, um, but it wasn't seen as a, as a campaign winner. Yeah. And did you get the sense from candidates that they were concerned about Russian attempts to interfere in the election or to tilt the election or do some of the things that we saw in 2016? Yeah, I think there was bipartisan concern leading up to it, um, whether or not our you know agencies had learned the lessons from 2016 to preclude that from happening again. So there's a lot of concern and there were um, certainly some arrests, but it doesn't seem to have systemically affected the outcome. Uh, and just piggybacking on what Louis mentioned, a lot of the members that were running uh, with previous national security experience, many of them ran on their duty to serve their um, previous civil servants, but few of them foregrounded po- foreign policy issues at the center right. of their campaigns. Many won on health care, taxes, yeah. economic issues. Right. I-, I would say the one foreign policy issue um, that did come up uh, was uh, – was China mm-hmm. um, and U.S.-China competition, and that was because of direct impact, perceived direct impact on the economies, you know, yeah. the tariff policy and trade and farming and those types of issues. So you saw that come up, but again, yeah. that was because of a, its dynamic as a domestic. So th- that kind of suggests then that some of the inside the beltway conversations about Russia as a strategic threat or as a, a threat to the integrity of American democracy or whatever you want to call it hasn't really penetrated out beyond the beltway, or at least not in a way that made it into a, a talking point during the election this this past year. I, I think that's true. I think it's very hard for a foreign policy issue, even a very important foreign policy issue, to penetrate outside the beltway. Um, and 
You know, I think that does not mean, though, that the issues surrounding um, uh, the Russia meddling in the election and then U.S. competition with Russia uh, are um, are not incredibly important to members of Congress. Uh, just traditionally, uh, policymakers, members of Congress, uh, don't focus on those issues on on the campaign trail. Right. Right. Um, but you know, it's interesting that I think once upon a time, being perceived as being weak on whatever the foreign policy challenge of the day was, whether it was Al-Qaeda or the Soviet Union or whatever, was seen as a political liability. And we don't necessarily see that with Russia now. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, the United States is still in two wars. Those uh, wars have become less politically salient in recent Mm -hmm. years. Uh, And whether we're moving to a new Cold War environment uh, with Russia again or with China, um, you know, foreign policy issues are low saliency issues and they're not going to uh, tip the direction in which many voters vote. Yeah, especially at a time when there's a lot of economic concern and cultural polarization and lots of other things. Now, in the period between 2016 and, and 2018, I think in part because of the perception that, that Russia um, tried to tip the 2016 election in Trump's favor, um, there was a kind of partisan divide on the, the response to Russia, including in Congress, although there was more sort of bipartisanship on sanctions legislation than just about anything else. Um, now that we have a, a Democratic majority in the House, what does that entail for sort of the future of how Congress approaches uh, Russia policy? Yeah, well, I, I, to, to sanctions, also add that they're at least on the Senate side where um, where they they had an opportunity to express um, their support. There's been strong support for the NATO alliance as well, right. which you can mm-hmm. also relate to uh, views on Russia. Um, but yeah, no, the the the, the change uh, in in uh, in the balance in, in Congress uh, is is going to likely have an impact. Uh, I think if you're going to if you were to separate Democrats and Republicans on Russia, I would say that there's bi- there's consensus on the on on a concern about Russia, um, but where Republicans would separate views on U.S.-Russia competition from the Mueller investigation, mm-hmm. Democrats fuse the two together. And I think that's what you see in the House where you're going to have, uh, we're going to see um, the 2016 election, uh, the president's uh, previous business dealings with mm-hmm. Russia as significant parts of the, the investigation, the investigative focus uh, on the House. And there's going to be a direct connection between that and then uh, where we go with the relationship going forward. And you won't see that as much on the Senate side even though you may still see strong support for NATO, strong concern about uh, Russia's policies, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's uh, Venezuela or yeah. uh, Eastern Europe or the Balkans or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Detainment of American citizens. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the flip in the House is, is a pretty dramatic change. There's been some shift in the Senate as well. Can you we talk a little bit about that and how it might impact approaches towards towards Russia and towards foreign affairs more generally? Sure. Um, uh, the biggest changes have been on the House, Senate Foreign Relations and the Senate Armed Services uh, Committee as well. Uh, you have new chairman. Uh, well, with the Senate didn't flip. You have new chairman on both committees, uh, and they're both going to be very different from mm-hmm. the previous chairman. Uh, on Senate Foreign Relations, you have Jim Risch uh, from Idaho, uh, who is uh, uh, friendly with the president. I don't think he is... Uh, I, I think he's an independently minded member. Uh, I think he wants to embolden and empower uh, the other members on the committee who have, a, especially within his own party, who have a range of views. So I don't think he will try to suppress those views. But I think he's going to want to have a productive and friendly relationship with the administration. Uh, and that 
could impact the dynamics around Russia. Just in the sense that you don't expect that committee to be a, a leader in sort of investigating the administration's ties to Russia or in, in being proactive in terms of, of taking steps vis-a-vis -vis Russia that the administration may not support. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I do I, I do believe Rish, uh, Senator Rish is a strong supporter of the NATO alliance uh, and uh, is uh, and a vocal supporter of the NATO alliance. Uh, and there are certainly issues where he would disagree with the president if the president went in a certain direction. Uh, but I think he wants to have a productive relationship with the executive branch. Uh, and Senator Corker was – they had a, a fairly conflicted relationship on a number of issues. Uh, he was a previous chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, on Senate Armed Services. Uh, you know, Senator John McCain, uh, before mm -hmm. he passed away, uh, was um, was a chairman and he's a, uh, he's a legend in, 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 in American foreign policy uh, and had his own very uh, distinct view. Um, you know, a chairman of the Armed Services Committee can go in a couple different directions. One can be to be a, a national security foreign policy leader. Mm -hmm. Another can be as a uh, as a protector and 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 an overseer of the Pentagon bureaucracy. Or you could do a combination of both. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say uh, Jim Inhofe, who's the new Senator of Armed Services, while he will certainly have views, he is not the foreign policy focused senator right. that John McCain was, or the vocal critic critic that John McCain was mm -hmm. uh, to the president. So. Uh, you'll see see change there as well. What's the the landscape uh, in Congress for new sanctions legislation? Well, it seems pretty possible. Um, some of the bills that were introduced in the last Congress, for instance, the Deter Act, which was co-sponsored by uh, Senator Rubio and Senator Van Hollen, I don't think has been reintroduced yet. But there does seem to be more appetite from a bipartisan perspective on in both houses for more sanctions legislation. The question is how to think about uh, those sanctions creatively to leave room for um, additional ratcheting up um, or down or down uh, and, and backing out of sanctions in depending on Russian actions. Um, but there, there's bipartisan consensus on a public threat perception level of Russia outside of the, the mm -hmm. Mueller investigation. And, and I think that bipartisan consensus also exists in Congress. The success of positive movement on sanctions or other efforts to support the NATO alliance, um, thinking about military posture in Europe, depends on how well advocates for that uh, can separate the two issues mm -hmm. um, and avoid um, pushing legislation that counters Russian influence uh, and avoid conflating that with calling into question the results of the 2016 election. Right. Yeah. I think there are a couple of different stories here, right? One is to what extent does Russia pose a threat to American interests? Um, and then there's the question of do you include sort of the functioning of the American political system within that? And if so, how do you perceive Russia's role in, in things like the 2016 election? Because, you know, it's one thing to say Russia poses a threat to transatlantic ties, to the viability of NATO, to the security of Ukraine or whatever else, without making that into a partisan issue. But then when it comes to did Russia put its finger on the scale or is Russia continuing to put its finger on the scale domestically, then that gets into issues where you know you, you do have more of a partisan divide, especially if the perception is that Russia is trying to help one side consistently rather than just sort of sow chaos more generally. And Jeff, one more point on sanctions too. I think you know, institutionally, uh, there's, a, there's a bipartisan view in Congress that uh, – over the years, they have developed 
uh, and fine-tuned our sanctions regime. There's a sense of ownership over mm-hmm. the sanctions regime, regime in Congress, and so there's always an interest in in uh, in pursuing those policies. And uh, you know, I think uh, when uh, the initial sanctions bill was passed last year, uh, it was seen as a political statement. It was You're a, talking about the the Katza. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you look at the, if you watch the uh, hearings towards the end of the year, especially the Senate Banking Committee, you start to see a, a view that you know the future sanctions efforts need to be more directed, fine-tuned, mm-hmm. focused on you know specific Putin cronies, not right. to harm the broader Russian economy. So rather than issuing sanctions as a way to just express frustration mm-hmm. uh, with a policy, uh, make a political statement, there's a feeling that Congress is responsible for developing the policy. Which is kind of striking if you think about it in, in terms of the history of the American use of sanctions. This is usually something that falls to the executive branch to do mm-hmm. um, for good reason, right? I mean, the executive branch is in theory a unitary actor and has a lot more flexibility to ratchet sanctions up or down or change them in response to to changing circumstances, whereas I say sometimes Congress is a very blunt instrument. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that Congress has has felt the need to take ownership as much as it has of of sanctions in the last couple of years is is pretty striking. And it's an outlet for maybe Republican members that don't want to be outwardly, vocally in opposition to the administration policy to ratchet up pressure on Russia. Uh, in you know, without directly confronting the administration, mm-hmm. and also to dissociate themselves from the administration if it turns out that there is some there there when it comes to the investigations of of the administration's ties to Russia. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the Mueller probe in in Congress. Um, of course, we don't know what the probe is going to find or when the findings are going to be released. Um, but how do you anticipate that um, that will will play in Congress and how will it affect congressional attitudes towards the administration, but also for the purposes of our of our listeners more towards Russia? I think um, uh, the Mueller probe is uh, the ramifications are going to be more internal than mm-hmm. in terms of foreign policy. I mean, certainly there's an impact on our relationship with Russia, but I think quite a bit of that is already baked in. Mm-hmm. It may it may adjust um, politics on the Re- Republican side. You know, if things come out to sh- you know, there's a um, there's you know proof of collusion. But obviously, you know, the stuff outside our bailiwick. You know, how to how to deal with uh, uh, results that might you know create uh, you know uh, more support for something like impeachment, that type of thing. Um, you know, that's I think the biggest issue. Um, I think I think the big change is you know having Democrats uh, in charge of the House, where you have an intelligence community that is going to be more cooperative, probably on 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 the Mueller probe um, will 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 change uh, the dynamic as well as additional the, investigations. So the intelligence of community or the intelligence committee? The, sorry, intelligence committee. Committee. Okay. Yeah, the House yeah. Select Committee of Intelligence. You know, Adam Schiff uh, has been one of the most vocal uh, critics of Russia. Um, of uh, uh, and, and, and vocal supporters of, of the Mueller probe, uh, and he and Devin Nunes, uh, who's a previous chairman, have not been on the same page. Yeah. Uh, so there's going to be a, a, a shift there. So in terms of congressional activity around the probe, there'll, there'll be a big change. Right. And, and beyond the Intelligence Committee, there's a whole lot of enthusiasm across the, the House for further investigations from the Judiciary, Oversight Committees, um, how financial services, looking into the, the Trump, uh, Trump's uh, tax returns. Um, I think the concern for Democrats it, kind of tactically is whether or not 
uh, piling on too many investigations at once muddles the message. Mm -hmm. And that on top of the ongoing Mueller investigation is kind of a, it, 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 the question becomes how much further it, um, the, the investigations can politicize the situation and mm -hmm. politicize viewpoints on uh, genuine threat perceptions of, of Russia. I would just, I would just circle, circle back to the beginning of the question again that, you know, I think uh, immediately after the 2016 election, there was more of a debate whether or not Russia meddled in the election. I think now there's a bipartisan consensus that that happened. So on the margins, there may be some movement, but I think there's still a consensus mm -hmm. in terms of the Russia part of, of this and, and, and what that means. Yeah, although I think it, there's still some partisan divide on the question of, one, what that interference looked like. You know, did it involve working with members of the Trump campaign? Of course. Um, and also what the ultimate impact of it was. Um, because I think people on both sides have incentives to play up or play down uh, the effectiveness of, of what Russia did to reinforce their own narrative about 2016. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Other than sanctions, which we've talked about, I mean, what do you expect from the new Congress as far as um, hearings, investigations, and also legislation with regard to, to Russia? Well, the big issue on the horizon um, for the Foreign Affairs National Security Committees will be nuclear issues. Mm -hmm. um, INF withdrawal. INF withdrawal, New START, uh, a whole bunch of those uh, issues are going to be coming up. Adam Smith has taken over as chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, and he has um, some, some views about the uh, U.S. nuclear modernization plans that um, might challenge uh, some of the administration's um, preferences in terms of that plan. Uh, in, in what sense? Uh, in in questioning um, the level at which we fund uh, nuclear modernization, mm -hmm. um, the necessity for for all portions of the triad. Uh, and so that'll be an ongoing debate, um, it seems like, in, in the spring going into mm -hmm. the summer uh, over the uh, U.S. nuclear posture and the accordant uh, effects that would have on uh, arms control negotiations with the Russians. Two, two other issues. Um, one, one, which is really emerging right now, and you know, the situation in Venezuela, mm -hmm. you know, it's it sort of it's looking a little bit like the 1980s in terms of you know, the, the rhetoric that is flying around and, you know, our role and, and then Russia's role mm -hmm. uh, with uh, what's going on with the government there. Um, that will not only you know, alter the relationship in a certain way, I think it'll, in Congress, it'll bring in additional members who care about that part of the right, world. Right, who and, care about Latin America, but not necessarily about Russia. Exactly. Or who care about human rights. Or... Absolutely. Um, and I, th I think the strength of the, um, of, of the interest in U.S.-China competition, U.S.-China relationship uh, is built on the, the the number of issues that China has an impact on outside of just the bilateral relationship. Right. So this is an ex example of that happening with Russia. And the other issue, you know, is you were know, going to the 70th anniversary of NATO, and we have a new. You know, there's a good chance, you know, North Macedonia is is coming on board. So that's going to create another flashpoint. Um, Congress has strengthened its vocal support of the NATO alliance, mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's been. Some question about the administration's support for the NATO right. alliance. Um, I think so, those questions are the origin of a lot of the more vocal approach on the part of Congress. 
because there's a concern that you have people in the administration who might walk back some of the commitments that the United States has made to NATO. Absolutely. And there is strong, strong Republican support for the NATO alliance. So, um, yeah, that will definitely be, you know, in the spring, uh, you know, that will be a time to really, it's interesting right now, but especially, you know, into the springtime, I think, um, will be important to watch, see what Congress does around, uh, around those issues. And on that point, just in particular, the House had a vote uh, earlier this week on legislation that would prohibit the Trump administration mm -hmm. from using any funds appropriated by Congress to withdraw from NATO. Uh, and that passed on a bipartisan basis overwhelmingly, 357 to 22. Uh, and the Republican opposition to that bill was not so much a led by members who were criticizing NATO, but more by members who did not want to, you know, outwardly rebuke the administration's mm -hmm. uh, questioning of the value of the alliance. Right. So if push came to shove, it would, you probably wouldn't have 27 people or 22. What, what was the number? 22. 22. Yep. Yeah. Voting for it. Yeah. I, th I think one of the, you mentioned this with sanctions, but I think one of the larger dynamics at play here is at a time when the administration is distracted with a lot of other things where the effectiveness of the State Department is at an all-time low, at least sort of for our lifetimes, Congress is stepping into the breach a lot more and taking on a more visible and active role in setting out the parameters for American foreign policy. Um, and it's interesting the extent to which there does seem to be a greater degree of bipartisanship uh, around some of these foreign policy issues, whether it's uh, the importance of NATO or concern about uh, Russia's challenge to American interests in different parts of the world than there isn't just about any other uh, issue in, that's being legislated in Congress. Absolutely. That was actually one of the major findings of a report that, that Louis and I worked on uh, over the last year where we looked at the viewpoints of members of Congress on foreign policy issues and really tried to assess the level of bipartisan support for international engagement um, and better appreciate the different viewpoints members have when they approach international affairs issues. And coming out of the 2016 election, where there was a little bit more of a meme of growing isolationism among the American public um, after electing a, a seemingly more isolationist-leaning president. And just in terms of looking at the U.S. Congress, that has not been how the last two years have played out. Uh, and I don't think that's going to change very much in the future. There's a lot of members of Congress, and it's only growing with, as Louis mentioned, the number of freshman members with substantial national security experience that uh, believe in the value of U.S. engagement abroad. Um, so I think the, the thing to look for in the next few Congresses is who are going to be the leaders mm -hmm. uh, in shaping how U.S. foreign policy strategy changes. Uh, there, there's a lot of appetite in Congress to start running on foreign policy issues where the administration has been lagging behind and given Congress the space to operate. Mm -hmm. Just to uh, um, uh, agree with everything Colin said, but just to build on that a little bit, I, I agree that there is there's more appetite, more interest. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is a, a younger generation of members um, who have great experience in foreign policy that want to lead, that want to mm -hmm. be uh, vocal. Uh, you know, there's some structural challenges, though, besides the constitutional structural challenge, which is the executive branch is going to, you know, lead on the for America's foreign policy and president is the commander in chief. Um, but uh, Congress uh, only passes one big, you know, foreign policy mm -hmm. bill uh, a year. It's the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, there's uh, they, they do not pass. Uh, they do not 
have had nearly as active oversight over the State Department as they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has always been a, a, a natural vehicle to elevate congressional input and leadership in foreign policy. Why is that? It's it's a it's a function of um, of the uh, of the broader challenge we have with Congress um, legislating. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's polarization. It's hard to get basic things done. We can't, as we all know, we can't even pass appropriations bills because we're in the middle of a of a shutdown. Though mm-hmm. that may end by the time uh, folks hear this, uh, based on uh, one new, can only new, hope. Yeah, news you're just watching. But uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a function of, of of leadership and institution. The political the political uh, the ability to um, uh, to legislate is there. It, it takes political will. It takes mm-hmm. bipartisan cooperation. So we're, it's one thing that we encur- we're encouraging. And that's you know, true of oversight as well. It's true of oversight as well. But when you have legislation, you have the leverage mm-hmm. to, to do oversight more effectively, right? Okay. Um, you know, if you have an opportunity every two years to augment um, a State Department bill, uh, then you have leverage within the State Department, right. for example. Uh, and you can make bold statements about where policy should go, mm-hmm. and you, you can require um, our you know, the executive branch to come back with plans and, and ideas um, that are uh, that connect to interests from from Congress. So yeah, so there there's a number of things that could be done uh, to strengthen the institution, um, and that's gonna that that's gonna need to happen for Congress to uh, to be an effective uh, you know co-equal branch of government on foreign policy with the executive branch. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think the the single most important thing that Congress could do to getting back into the business of being a co-equal branch in foreign affairs issues is regularly seeking to pass a state authorization bill. And that would do a lot more toward advancing congressional influence on foreign policy and uh, improving the, the functioning, the budgeting, the execution of the State Department and USAID and U.S. foreign policy in general, then uh, an, an additional investigation of Trump collusion um, with Russia in the 2016 election. Obviously, the the role that Congress plays in the United States and the role that the legislature plays in a country like Russia is, is very different. And I know there's been resistance in the past um, on the part of the American Congress to bilateral engagement with Russian counterparts. Um, do you see any prospect for that sort of engagement going forward or any ways in which members of Congress individually or collectively can sort of play a role in the, the diplomatic engagement between Washington and Moscow? I think uh, diplomatic engagement uh, from uh, amongst members of Congress is an under, underutilized tool broadly in American foreign policy. Um, the demand is for, from members is always going to be to get beyond interparliamentary exchange, mm-hmm. you know, because you know, the dynamics between our legislature and foreign legislatures, the power structures are different, as right. you mentioned, um, and members are acutely aware of that. You know, our Congress is a co-equal branch of government. That is not always the case. Right. And um, they're also acutely aware of the potential for bad press if you're, you know, photographed talking to the leader of the of a party that's not seen as being a, an independent player but is sort of subordinate to uh, a government well, that we don't like. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it depends because uh, I think there are certain members who are who are fine. They don't view that as a political risk. You mm-hmm. know, they – they were willing to take that criticism because they don't, you know, as we discussed, foreign policy is is not what swings votes mm-hmm. so much. So there's more space for members yeah. to take a little bit more risk in foreign policy. Um, you know, if it seems if they are, uh, and then in, engaging with with an adversary is not, you know, uh, for for many of these members is not viewed as 
as as being you know a, a friend of that of that mm-hmm. adversary. So I think um, I just think uh, it's hard to get members to engage in interparliamentary exchanges across mm-hmm. the board. So we don't see as much of that. Uh, when it happens, I think it's very valuable. Uh, but when it happens, it has to get beyond just interparliamentary. Mm-hmm. It has to has to be with other parts of the government, mm-hmm. especially a place like Russia, where everyone in Congress knows that decisions flow through Putin, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and it's, they're not going to do anything for a ceremonial right. or, um, you know, or, or just a photo op. Right. All right. Thank you both for joining us. This has been really interesting. Um, a lot to, uh, to watch going forward. I think, uh, the, the role of Russia in Congress and the role of Congress uh, on Russia is going to be a, a big topic in the coming year. So uh, this has been very helpful. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Absolutely. That's it for our show today. Uh, there's a link to Louie and Colin's bios in the show notes. Uh, you can also find them on the CSIS website. Uh, if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And for those of you who don't use iTunes, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, keep spreading the word, uh, keep signing up, uh, and tell your friends about Russian Roulette. Uh, also, uh, this is your bi-weekly reminder to send us mailbag questions. We did a mailbag episode a couple weeks ago. We'll do another one here soon. You can email your questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. The program is at CSIS Russia, and I'm at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, of course, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Do svidaniya.